0: You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Uh, before this week, uh, there's, a, there's a man named Sam Coonrod. and Not very many people know, knew who Sam Coonrod, Coonrod was before this week. And maybe you still don't know, but he's a pitcher for the San Francisco Giants. And this past Thursday, or the opening day of Major League Baseball, the season resumed, and this photo went viral on the field of Los Angeles Dodgers Stadium. It's the Dodgers against the Giants. And every uniformed person on the field, and coaches and players and everybody, they're all kneeling during the national anthem except for one man, Sam Coonradi, the pitcher for the Giants. And, of course, the photo went viral right away, and, and everyone's talking about it. And, and, and uh, they asked him why um, he refused to kneel, why he didn't bow. And here's what he said, because uh, most of us understand what's going on in our culture, and uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is very prevalent, and, and they're standing to support that movement, or they're, they're kneeling to support that movement. But here's what Sam Coonrod st- said, and I don't know him. And I don't, I don't know his, his motivations, I don't know his, his spiritual life, I don't know anything about him, but here's what he said. He said, I, here's the reason, I, I'm a Christian, so I just believe that I can't kneel before anything else besides God. And he went on to say, I just can't get on board dealing with the Black Lives Matter movement, he said, I just can't get on board with a couple of things I've read about the Black Lives Matter movement, how they lean toward Marxism, and then they said some negative things about the nuclear family, and I just can't get on board with that. And I don't, again, I don't know anything about Sam Kudrod's, his personal testimony, but it is hard first, it's hard to fault him uh, for saying that he only kneels before God as a Christian. And again, I don't know his motivation, I don't know his, his, his actual reasons for doing what he did, I can't judge his heart, but I do appreciate his willingness to stand for Christ in a culture that's not going to receive it very well. Uh, I, I, second then, uh, his statements about the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, as a Christian, uh, who, and I have, a few weeks back, I got on their website and I read the What We Believe section of the Black Lives Matter website. I don't know if you've read this or not, and, uh, but I think that every Christian should because when you get on it and you read what they say they believe, it is not just about racial equality. I can tell you that. Uh, I, I am As a Christian, I can stand here before God and say that I do believe that black lives matter. Absolutely, they do. Uh, every soul is important to God in, no matter the color of your skin. And for anybody that, as an Eastside Baptist Church member, if you don't believe that, then you don't have a biblical view of race. God loves every person, and I do believe that black lives matter, absolutely. But the movement itself, uh, if, I was, uh, if I was a person of color, uh, as a Christian, I would have a tough time supporting it, because if you read it, and I encourage you to get on and do it, not on your phones right now, uh, but I encourage you to get on and read it, because they directly attack fathers, the patriarchal system. Of the family unit, which is a biblical structure for a family, they they attack it directly, and not only that, they they also then attack. Well, the, overall, they, they attack the, the the general makeup, the structure, not only the father centered, but then um, the way that the family unit uh, is structured. And, and when they and I, I won't, I did, I'm not going to even read what they said. I want to encourage you to get on and read it if you are a Christian then I don't see how you can believe the Bible and support that mission statement. I don't see how you can believe the Bible and believe what they say that they believe. This is not a, a racial message. This has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with what they've listed on their website as what they believe. It's a dangerous and unbiblical mindset. It has nothing to do with race relations. At some point, I encourage you as a Bible believer to get on and read it. So, I'm again, back to Sam Kudra now. My reason for talking about it is without even knowing the kind of man that Sam Kudrod is, the image of him standing there while everyone else is kneeling is an eye-opening image. It's kind of jarring. And the fact that when he said, I'm doing it because I'm a Christian, and, and he's now being crucified by the media for standing when everyone else is kneeling, it just made me step back and realize we have come a long way in our culture in a very short amount of time. It's, it's an eye, it just should be an eye opener for us. This is a reality check for us. As he was standing there and he says, he's standing for the Lord again, I don't know his motives, everyone else is kneeling. I'm thinking to myself of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And, and, I, and I'm not even saying in any way that these two things are the same, but here's a man who, who says, I will not kneel because of my relationship with God, and because I'm a Bible believer who doesn't agree with what this movement says we, we should go to, so I'm going to stand here and to see how he's being attacked and all makes me think, I mean, those three young Hebrew boys standing there in front of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar while everyone else is bowing on their faces and they're doing it knowing that consequences are, are to come and I, my mind just, I couldn't get away from that image. You know, we are in a place as a country and we got here very quickly that many of us thought we may not get to in a long time, but we're here right now. Standing for God and standing for your beliefs is now, that's the, the, the view that is viewed with hostility. That's the view that is then responded to with anger and hatred. And especially if it goes against what someone else wants to believe. And I have, and the reason I'm talking about this this morning is because as I saw that image and as I'm in a cabin with some young men and driving a van with some young women and young men, my heart and my mind was thinking about the next generation. And I was wondering, do we have young people at Eastside Baptist Church who if they were placed in a position where they have to stand for their God and nobody else does, I wonder if they'll do it. We have to start thinking about how we're preparing the next generation for the battles that they are going to face. it's not They're they're not coming in to adulthood in the same America, in the same United States that we have grown up in. And they'll likely be the ones that face some real tests of faith. This week was just another reminder to me that we better be preparing them to have a strong faith or they'll be the ones bowing to the next trend that comes along. They've got to know where they believe and they've got to believe. believe it strongly enough to remain standing. There's a real enemy and he wants to take them down. And listen, our enemy is not a, some movement that we're against or we're opposed to. It's not some other perp- a person. Our, our, our enemy is, you can't see him. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. And Satan is our enemy And he will stop at nothing to take our young people down. He'll stop at nothing to take you down. None of us are exempt. None of us are are not targets. We're all targets. So I'm thinking Then what are we doing to help not just ourselves, but the next generation of young people? What are we doing to help them to be prepared to stand when the enemy challenges them? How do we prepare them for the inevitable attack of Satan in their lives and it may not just be a spiritual attack someday. They may be deciding if they're going to meet or not because of persecution. They may be the ones being ridiculed for being a Christian at school. They may be the ones that are having to take a real stand that looks a lot more like the Bible stands that were taken years and years ago. See, I, I believe that this account in Second Chronicles 32, it could provide some help, not just for our young people, but also for parents. And again, many of these thoughts were preached on this week by uh, Pastor Jeff Redlin, uh, and I, I thought they were so good, but I also think they can help us as we're influencing young people to prepare for the enemy. Because there's a real enemy, and he has a plan. And his plan is destroy, to destroy everything that God uh, has ever created, and, and that is by, by, I mean, his people. God wants to take, or Satan wants to take God's people down. And he will stop at nothing to attack them. And we better be prepared. They better be prepared. So as a summary of Second Chronicles 31 and 32, and, um, Hezekiah here is prospering. And he has the attention of the enemy. And, and I, I want you to just look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 32. After these things and the establishment thereof, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. So Sennacherib is the king of Assyria. The, the Assyrians are the enemies of Israel, and he has his eyes on Jerusalem, and he comes marching into Judah, into Israel, and he's conquering one city after the next. His, his idea is, I'm going to take down all the fenced cities until I get to Jerusalem and win the big prize. And you know, Sennacherib is not by himself. According to 2 Kings 19, he has 185,000 soldiers with him. So that's quite an army. And they're marching through Judah on their way to Jerusalem. He's dominating the cities. Hezekiah knows he's coming. And not only is he aware that Sennacherib is coming, but Hezekiah knows that unless he takes some, some preparations and unless he does something to prepare to meet the enemy, that it's over. Sennacherib is not messing around. Uh, he, he's, not, he's not going to provide mercy. He's not going to show any grace. He's coming and he's destroying things. He's destroying cities. He's destroying people. Look at verse 2. Here, look at what Hezekiah does. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come and that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the foundations or the fountains which were without the city, and they did help him. So there was gathered much people together who stopped all the fountains and the brook that ran through the midst of the land saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? See, Hezekiah knows that an army, especially an army of 185,000 people, uh, soldiers, they need water to survive. Water is necessary. So there are these wells, these fountains outside the city, and they're being supplied by a brook. So Hezekiah then comes up with a plan to stop the water, to fill up the fountains, to stop the brook, Dam it up somewhere else so that he's not providing a resource for Sennacherib. It's a great plan. I think it's a great idea. And this is where we come to then the first principle of preparing for an enemy. The first principle to prepare, the first way that we can help someone else prepare for the enemy. And first, it's to refuse to provide for the enemy. How do you prepare for the enemy? Well, the first thing you should look at is refuse to provide for the enemy. See, here's Hezekiah, and he refused to do anything that would strengthen Sennacherib. I mean, is water bad? Answer it, is water bad? No. Is it a sin to drink water? No, it's not. Well, water could have helped Hezekiah. I'm sure these fountains were a resource that he needed as well. But Sennacherib is coming. And if he had a limitless water supply, that would help Sennacherib take out Jerusalem. So Hezekiah, listen, Hezekiah was willing to stop something if it meant not giving strength to his enemy he was willing to limit himself if it meant that he wouldn't provide a resource for his enemy and here's the principle it may not be a sin but it also may not be smart it may not be a sin but it may also not be smart sometimes you have to do like the apostle paul in first corinthians and be willing to limit yourself and to give some things up that are well within your rights in order to accomplish something spiritual. It may not be a sin, but it also may not be smart. See, sometimes we have to be willing to set something aside for a spiritual benefit, even if it's not a sin. Hebrews 12 says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Now, we know that if we're gonna run the Christian race That we have to set aside our sin. We can't please God and sin at the same time. But he also says, let us lay aside the weight. And sometimes it's not necessarily a sin that holds us back as much as it is. A weight, it's something that isn't necessarily wrong, but there are things that we have to set aside so that we can run our Christian race the way that we need to. See, it's not always a decision about right or wrong. Sometimes it's a decision about good or best. I mean, and, and the illustration that was used was, if you're going to go run a marathon and, and uh, you show up to the race and everyone else is ready and they've got their gear and they've got their running shoes, and you show up in a pair of cowboy boots. I mean, I, I, cowboy boots are fine. We've got men in the room right now that wear cowboy boots. I can't pull it off. I just can't. I, I used to, I've worn them before. I find them pretty comfortable. And, and men that wear cowboy boots say, I mean, once you wear cowboy boots and it's really broken in, they're really broken in, there's nothing more comfortable. That's, that's great. I can't do it. I'm not manly enough to pull it off. But if you show up to a race in cowboy boots, people aren't saying, um, they're not, they're not going di- to comment on your manliness. They're going to say that's dumb. Because, I mean, maybe you can't. Somebody in here, I'm sure, could prove me wrong. But if you can run 26 miles and set a personal best... Wearing cowboy boots, go for it. That's not normally what happens. See, it's not so much that wearing them is wrong as much as it is that's not good for your race. It's not going to help you. It's not helpful. And some of the applications that Brother Redland brought up this week, he used the application of a teenager not playing basketball so that he could focus on Christ. And I've seen young people get so wrapped up in sports before that their focus is on the sport. And now suddenly they're willing to skip a Wednesday night to go to practice instead of coming to church or they're willing to be gone on a weekend and go to to a tournament instead of uh, being at church with their church family or they're missing church things to play basketball. But playing basketball is not wrong in and of itself. But for a young person who's really wrapped up in playing basketball, it, it can be a weight. It can be a hindrance to their Christian race. There's nothing wrong with it unless the enemy can use it against you. There's nothing wrong with water unless your enemy can use it against you. That's what Hezekiah is thinking. I mean, I think about things like video games and other things that young people do a lot of. There's nothing inherently wrong. Now, I do believe there is something inherently wrong with certain video games. And I was expecting an amen from some dads and moms on that. I mean, not every video game is is spiritually helpful at all. And I would say that it's actually probably, before God's eyes, a wicked game. But just playing uh, innocent video games, there's nothing wrong with that. And sometimes our family does that. We'll do it together. Uh, But if it starts to impede a walk with God, that's when it becomes a weight. That's when it needs to be set aside. And there's applications for us as well. I mean, there are all kinds of things that, that can be used against us spiritually. And I know a lot of good men that love to hunt and they keep it balanced. But I also know a lot of good men that love to hunt. And they have no problem missing multiple Sundays every hunting season to be out in the field and trying to shoot something. I'm not preaching against hunting. I'm preaching about the priority that it often takes in a man's life over God. And if that's the case, then it becomes a weight. It is something that is not spiritually helpful and you ought to be willing to set it aside. Fishing other hobbies, or even work, or cars, or motorcycles. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with those kinds of things. But if they pull our heart away from, instead of toward God, we need to strongly consider cutting it off so it doesn't contribute to what our enemy wants for us. And it doesn't just apply to teens and adults, although it does, but it also applies to those of us trying to raise young people. See, parents... We have to be careful that our habits aren't being used to affect our spe- our children spiritually in a negative way. I think about, and this is, a, I mean, not normally something I preach about on, on Sunday mornings, but I just think about what's being watched in Christian homes all over the country, and the movies and the things that are on the television. You know, we we may we may be mature enough to handle something, but first, I mean, are we really? A lot of parents will assume they are, but I'm not sure it's good for them spiritually. But second, our, our, our kids are watching too. See, so something that you might watch, it might not directly be sinful, but if we're exposing our kids to something that could potentially hurt their spiritual lives, we ought to be willing to say, no, it's a big enough deal to protect my child that I will submit this to the Lord and I'll, and I'll cut something off if it's not good for my children. Are the things that we're listening to, the music we have playing in our cars and in our homes, are we giving our children an appetite for something that will lead them in the opposite direction or away from the Lord? And you need to say, well, preacher, you came back from camp. You're really meddling now. Well, um, sometimes it's good to get right down to it and think about the applications that are the real life, everyday applications, because parents, everything we do influences our children either toward or away from the Lord anyone with influence over the next generation, what may not seem like a big deal to us is in, in what we watch or listen to or even what we say or what we wear or how we respond in our spirits or in our attitudes. Those things are likely planting seeds in young hearts of the next generation that could start producing some long-term negative fruit. And we ought to, as Paul said in First Corinthians 6 and 8 and 10, we ought to be willing to set aside something like eating meat offered to idols if it might be a stumbling block to a less mature Christian. And parents, it's good for us to examine uh, what water supplies we may need to be cutting off so we're not planting seeds or, or enabling something in the enemy, from the enemy in our children's lives. Are we willing to, to, for their sake, nix some resources, even if it's within our rights? See, this principle is found... In many places in the New Testament, I think about Romans 13, 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. See, the provision itself may not be sin, but if it puts us in a position that makes it easier to sin, we ought not to do it. It's like the old, the old uh, illustration of, of the, the man who, who was struggling with alcohol and he was trying to overcome it. But every day he would drive home and on his route on the way home from work was uh, his, his favorite liquor store. So, he would, so just driving by it most of the time, uh, he'd be tempted every time to pull in and go buy something when he knew he shouldn't. And one easy thing that man could have done is to take a different route on the way home. And it may be longer, but to not make provision for the flesh is something that every Christian ought to be willing to do. And we ought to be willing parents and those of us in one generation that are preparing the next generation to, to not put them in a position where we are, where, where we are uh, making provision for their flesh. Satan desires to have us that he may sift us as wheat. Be willing to lay something aside to protect against sin, not just in your life, but in somebody else's. And that's the first principle. Refuse to provide for the enemy. The second is found down in verse 5, and this is this, rebuild the wall of separation. Look at verse 5, rebuild the wall of separation. Also, he strengthened himself, and he built all the wall that was broken, and raised it up to the towers, and another wall without, and repaired Milo in the city of David, and made darts and shields in abundance. So here's, here's Hezekiah, and he's looking at the things that he can do to help prepare for the enemy. And the first is, I've got to cut off their water supply. If they don't have water, they won't have strength. But the second is he starts looking around at the wall in Jerusalem, and he sees that it's broken down. And he says, I need to start rebuilding some of the walls for protection's sake. And this is an important principle. Hezekiah was trying to protect this environment so that freedom could be protected. They were free. They, they, the walls provided separation and gave them this environment of freedom that they could enjoy. And walls do that. Walls provide freedom and safety from the elements. I'm thankful that in a South Dakota winter that we have walls on our church building. And you should be too. You say, well, I came in this morning and it felt like a South Dakota winter. Okay, I'm sorry. We'll provide um, blankets once coronavirus is over. But you know, we should be thankful for for the walls because they're not just here for aesthetics. They protect us from the elements. Another word for this point that Hezekiah is doing that I want to call it, I'm just going to call it standards. You know, there are things that we build up um, not as a form of idolatry or not as some form of, uh, of uh, Christian comparison with others, but for protection's sake. Standards are misunderstood. Matthew 23, 23, and you should write that verse down and read it when you get a chance. It says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. It's Jesus Christ himself. He says... Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. You know what he's getting on to the Pharisees about, was that they were they were elevating their offerings of anise and cumin and these other things, and mint, they were elevating those, and making sure that all of those were done exactly the way that they should be done, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law, like judgment and mercy and faith. And what Jesus Christ is saying, he's saying, I'm not saying get rid of, of the peripherals. You need the peripherals for protection, um, but you should focus more on the essentials and the peripherals are there to protect the essentials. He saying, hey, don't get rid of the peripherals. Don't stop tithing, don't stop tithing. Don't stop giving. Don't, don't think that's unimportant, but don't do those and forget the, what, the actual godliness that should be produced in you as a child of God. And sometimes we do that. And standards, listen, standards, God's, uh, let me see how I can say this. Pharisees were known for their rules. Lots and lots of them. But they were caught up in the peripherals instead of the essentials. God's not as concerned about what we give as he is, how godly we are. I mean, what Jesus is saying is standards are important, but they're there to protect the things that matter for godliness. So don't don't neglect the important matters and be left with the rules only. See, standards, as important as they are, they're not the end all. Uh, They are important, but if you don't know what you're protecting, they're empty. What good is a wall if it's not protecting anything? See, sometimes we think the standard matters the most, but what the standard is there to protect actually matters the most. And the illustration that Brother Redlon used was uh, an iPhone, and I didn't bring my iPhone here because I make a habit of not bringing it with me up here. But if you've got an iPhone, can I borrow? Oh, yours is pink. This is not good. Okay, well, no, I'll take it. That's fine. The case. She has a pink case. It's not my phone. Okay. You know, this I, having an iPhone is is Great, or having an Android, whatever it is, whatever side you're on, team iPhone, whatever. But, you know, if I take the case off my iPhone because it looks cooler, and I'm out in the parking lot, and somebody calls me, and I drop it on the concrete, then you're not going to say, I'm so sorry, I feel so bad for you that you did that. No, I took the case off the iPhone. It's kind of my fault. See, that's standard. That's the difference between standards uh, in people's minds. See, a lot of people think that, that standards are all that matters, but the, the standards are just the phone case. Standards are just the phone case protecting what's actually valuable. It's, we are, uh, very often assume that the standards are the most important thing, but it's really standards are just protecting the most important things. And, and very often, we assume then that if we have our standards, we have everything, but if we don't love God first, then standards can be pretty empty. Now, I'm not saying that standards aren't important at all. That's not what Jesus Christ was saying. Listen, is it a sin to have a phone without a phone case? No, but it also isn't very smart. See, what are standards? Standards are like putting cases around the things that matter. For teenagers, purity. Purity is worth protection. So you put up some standards to protect your purity. Not because you're more spiritual than everybody else, but because you value your purity. Uh, For teenagers, I think about your heart, and your heart is worth protecting. So you put up some standards, like what you view or what you read or what you watch or what you listen to and even who you spend time around, not because you're trying to be a Pharisaical, but because you're trying to protect what matters. It's not about the standard, it's about what you're protecting. Your life matters that much, teenager. But for those of us with influence over young people, don't be afraid of standards. I know that modern church culture now has gone away from many standards, but Jesus Christ didn't say get rid of the standards. He said don't let the standards be there to protect. He said the standards should be there to protect what matters the most. So they still matter, but not if they're just protecting nothing. So let's have some standards. Let's help our young people protect their hearts by what we allow them to be exposed to online. Let's, let's help protect our young people's hearts by monitoring them on their, in their online activities and on their phones. I mean, some parents act as if, you know, well, your child's phone, that's his property. There's a lot of young Christian teenagers being taken down by what they're being exposed to on their phones, and parents should have the right to go in and look at whatever they want to. I mean, especially if they're paying the phone bill every month. Because I know how much those phone bills are. Listen, standards aren't the most important thing, but they're important. Let's not release them simply because the next generation doesn't feel they're necessary. See, let's help our young people, though, in the meantime, have balance with it. Say yes to standards, but no to the haughty spirit that often accompanies standards. Brother Redland said, people are eager, people eager to follow Christ... See an issue and raise a standard, but others see a standard and raise an issue. Say that again, people eager to follow Christ see an issue, and they raise a standard for protection. But others see the standard, and they just raise the issue. See, we, we don't need to raise them thinking their value is in their list of standards. Paul said it's not wise to compare ourselves with, with others and, and measure ourselves by others. So don't make a standard, a badge of honor. That's not the point. No, have a high enough view. Here it is. Have a high enough view of what you're protecting that you're willing to raise a standard in order to protect it. So parents, you know, so this is where we then start getting down to uh, the the details. So our, our view of how important their lives are will often be what determines how high our standard is. And if we view the lives of our children and our young people as being extremely important, then we will be willing to raise a standard even if it's a little bit higher because we value them that much. For us to be flippant or nonchalant about protection doesn't just say something about having low standards. In some ways, it says we don't value what we're protecting all that much. I mean, parents, we need to be careful I mean, I'm thinking about things like, obviously, what what they're looking at or what they're watching or what they're wearing. Let's be really mindful that it's not about the standard. It's about what we're trying to protect. Walls or standards are worth it if it will protect what's inside the wall. There's freedom there. Don't assume that it doesn't matter. It does. So if, if there's something worth protecting, put a case on it. Not because the case looks a certain way, but because what it's protecting matters. So if there's an enemy coming, and if we're going to help our young people, then we need to refuse to make provision for the enemy, refuse to provide for the enemy. And second, rebuild some walls of separation. And third, found down in verse six, is refocus on submission to authorities. Look down at verse six. It says, and he said, captains, of war over the people and gathered them together to him in the street of the gate of the city and spake comfortably to them, saying, and then he gives him the speech. But I, I want to just point out the fact he set captains of war over the people. So here's Hezekiah. And, le, and in the middle of the, of the battle that's coming, in the preparation, he doesn't throw out the structure of authority just because things are getting scary. Now, sometimes we panic and we lose our heads, and, uh, but God operates through authority. And that's how it works right here. And what's interesting is, you think about this. So here's Hezekiah. He knows the enemy's coming, and he sets certain captains over certain of the people, and he's starting to work through the authority structure here. But you would have to think that there were some that, that the captain they got wasn't really their favorite captain. Uh, you know, if, if, let's just say that, you know, myself and Brother Samuel we're we're soldiers in the Jewish army, and we know Sennacherib and his 185,000 are coming And so Hezekiah comes, and I imagine it's like on the softball field, you know, one, two, three, four. You know, he's going down, and we get, and I get this captain over here, and Brother Samuel gets this captain over here. But, you know, my captain, his captain is great. His captain is a manly man. He knows how to make decisions. Everybody wants to follow him. But my captain that I get, I mean, he can't hardly decide anything. I mean, he's nervous, he's scared, we ask questions, he won't really tell us what to do. Now, so listen, so some people would assume then, because the quality of my captain isn't very high, that I don't have an obligation to submit to his authority. But what God is not, God's not looking for, his standard is not the quality of the authority. His What he's looking for in us is a quality of our submission. See, we if all we ever did was submit, if the authority was perfect, we'd never submit to anybody. There are no perfect authorities. Every one of us is a sinner. And we all have something that we've got to work through. But that doesn't mean that the authority structure gets thrown out the window. And that's important for teenagers to hear because they know their parents. And, and, and I don't know about you at your house, but at our house, as much as I wish it was different, our, their parents are not perfect. And I don't know any kids that have ever had perfect parents. But it doesn't change the fact that God has placed an authority structure in the home and they have an obligation to submit to the authority structure that they're under. That's how God works. In young people, it's important for them to see that you just submit because that's God's plan for you. But remember this, we're preparing them for the enemy. So how does this apply to us? Well, their pattern of submission to authority, listen, their pattern, our young people, their pattern or submission to authority is being set dads by how seriously you submit to your authorities the way that they submit to their authorities will follow how their parents submit to their authorities so dads how you talk about your boss at home be careful and moms and dads how you how you talk about church authorities at home on sunday lunch be careful Because how we deal with our authorities will make a big difference in how our children will deal with their authorities. Ladies, your children's view of authority will be strongly influenced by how you submit to the role of your husband in your home. Our submission to our authorities will influence how they spend their lives submitting to authorities. These are good principles. I'm not going to spend as much time on that one just because I'm going to start wrapping this up. But if we're going to prepare our young people for the, next, for the enemy, then we've got to cut off the, resor- the enemy's resources, we've got to increase protection through separation, and we've got to submit to authority. Three excellent ways to prepare the next generation for the enemy. Listen, the enemy's coming. And he's not messing around. And somebody in this room, I imagine someday, will be given an ultimatum to stand alone before God or face some serious consequences. And we may think it's going to be a young person, but who knows that it may not be you or me. See, we're going to find out if they're capable of standing when no one else does. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if we will prepare them like Hezekiah, prepared for his enemy, we'll be doing them a great help. Look at the result of all of this in verse 7 and 8. Be strong, I love the speech, be strong and courageous, be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that's with him, for there be more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles, and the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. See, I love this. When we look to God He looks at us and provides us with his unlimited resources. Anytime God is with us, it's more than the enemy. I mean, in this case, according to, again, 2 Kings 19, 185,000 strong. And yet, because God was on their side, they said, God's with us. We have more than the enemy. And we find out later, just a few verses later, that the Lord sends an angel into the camp of the Assyrians and takes out all 185,000. Sennacherib tucks his tail between his legs and runs home and he's worshiping in the house of his little G-God, and his own sons kill him in the house of his God. Hezekiah doesn't have to lift a finger in this battle. He's just a righteous man who simply prepared himself and his people for the enemy. And God did the rest. God fought fought for Judah. God is more. He's more than anything that we face, folks. And look at what the people had by allowing God to do what only he could do. It says at the end of verse 8, it says the people rested. So all of these things, refusing to provide for your enemy and and rebuilding the walls and restructuring, refocusing on authority, and then finally you have rest. They had prepared. They, They had done all they could. And God responded to their doing what they could by doing all that he can do. So here it is in a nutshell, we have rest when we do all we can do because God responds by doing what only he can do. We have rest by doing all we can do because God responds by doing what only he can do. We can rest in that. We don't have to worry, we don't have to fret. We've done all we can and God will take care of that which is outside of our control. And listen, the next generation is worth this kind of investment. I'll say it again. These young people, our children, are worth this kind of investment. They're worth the preparation. And, and their time to stand may be coming soon. It's worth it to limit ourselves. Moms and dads, it, it's worth it it's for us to limit our spell ourselves if it will help them spiritually. They're worth it for us to build some walls and some standards as a form of protection. It's worth it. Their future is worth our willingness to respect God's authority structure in order to be an example to them. And when we've done all we can, we can rest in trusting the Lord for the rest of it. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be nervous. We don't have to be worried about their tomorrow. That doesn't help anything. Let's take all of that nervous energy and invest it in preparing them to take a stand. You know, I think about My children taking a stand. And I want them to be those that are left standing. I do. But I know also first, it's going to require me taking a stand on some things to prepare them. I'm going to have to take a stand as a dad sometimes and be strong uh, about the provision for their flesh and and the the rebuilding of some walls and making sure that the focus is on the authority. And that's not always easy. But the way I view it is I either, I either stand now or they fall later. And I think about them standing, and I, I honestly, I get, I, I get a little bit anxious about what they're going to face. But I, would re- I can rest if I've done all I can to prepare them. Because once I'm gone, I can't help them anyway. All they'll have from me is, did dad prepare me for this moment? And, and I'll hope that, I hope it will be said of me as a dad and, and, and Miss Erin as their mom that we have helped them all we could. Because I'm not just thinking about if they have to stand before an enemy here someday. I'm thinking about the time, the most important stand they'll ever take. And that is when they stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat. So when I'm trying to decide, is it worth it? These are the battles you face, as a dad. is it worth it? to uh, tell her her skirt's not long enough (laughs) again. I'm just being really transparent now, I guess. Okay, let's tighten that up. Not because I think, oh, that's the sign of a good Pharisee. No, because I'm trying to help them prepare to stand before Jesus Christ someday. And I value their lives enough that I'm willing to raise a standard and work a little harder to prepare them for the moment not just when they stand before a human enemy, but when they stand before Jesus Christ. When I think about that, boy, there's not very many places as a dad I wouldn't be willing to go to help them prepare for that moment. So we're either going to help them prepare to fall or to stand. Parents in this room, we're either preparing our children to take a stand or to fall. Influences teachers, teachers, uncles, aunts. The next generation is looking to us too. And we're either, what we're doing is either going to help them stand or we'll help them bow. And we've got to decide that their lives are worth raising a standard for. And I'm going to take this to another level. Not because I think a standard is all that matters, but because their lives matter. And I hope that someday, if they're ever in the spotlight and they have a choice to stand for God or take a knee, that they'll be some of the ones left standing. We have a responsibility, church, to help the next generation be prepared for the enemy that's coming. And I hope that you'll say, I want to be a part of that. Every head bowed, every eye closed, let's stand together.